nobody's ever accused of faking cancer or faking heart disease, you know, or these other things, other aspects of medicine that do have very quantitative data. They have assays that you can perform in a lab and get a quantitative readout and say, yes, you know, you, you definitely have this. And psychiatry has sort of lacked that. Welcome to the Illumina Genomics Podcast, where leading scientists discuss their genomics research and how genomics is shaping their understanding of science and nature. Here's your host, Paul Broman. Hello, hello, and thanks for joining me for episode 27 in our series. If this is your first time joining us, welcome to the show. According to recent statistics published by the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, just about 15% of the global population suffered from a psychiatric disorder in 2016. That's more than 1 billion people worldwide. In addition to the health and economic impact on society, individuals with psychiatric disorders also suffer from the societal stigma associated with these diseases. Now, part of the reason for this stigma is a lack of understanding about the genes involved in psychiatric diseases. Today, we're going to talk about the genetics of autism spectrum disorder, a complex psychiatric disorder that affects nearly 1 in 59 children in the United States. I'm joined by Dr. Jacob Michelson, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Iowa. Jacob and his team of researchers use genomic and computational techniques to understand autism and other psychiatric disorders. Jake, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule and sitting down to talk with us. From doing some of my background research, you're interested in understanding the genetics of psychiatric disease. Can you describe these types of disorders and uh, which ones you focus on and why? The thing that we focused on the most are neurodevelopmental conditions. And so those are conditions that are largely genetic and they, they affect brain development and brain function as early as fetal development, so during pregnancy and during the development of the fetus. And then those disrupted patterns of development then go on when the child, as the child grows to manifest in specific patterns of behaviors, depending on what kind of a condition you're talking about. The two neurodevelopmental conditions that we focus on most in the lab are on the one hand, autism. It affects about one in 59 people, so it's wow. pretty, pretty common. The other condition that we, that's a neurodevelopmental condition that we focus on that is not as well known, even though it's about twice as common as autism, is language impairment. And sometimes that's called specific language impairment or SLI. Sometimes it's called developmental language disorder. And that affects about 7% of the population. It also has a genetic basis, but there's been far less research done on that genetic basis in comparison to autism, even though, like I say, it's more common. So that's another area where we're doing research and we're finding some very interesting things that some of the genetic variations that influence language either positively or negatively also can confer risk for psychiatric conditions as well. Interesting. Over the past 10 years or so, you, you know this as much as anyone, there's been a kind of an explosion in next-gen sequencing and NGS and, and also in uh, genotyping arrays, which we can talk about later. Has that impacted research on psychiatric diseases? I would say it absolutely has. And part of the reason for that is that psychiatry is sort of unique among the various fields of medicine because it doesn't have a lot of thoroughly quantitative data that you can hang your hat on. Right. Historically, it's a very kind of an observational and, and a lot of it ends up being quite subjective interpretation. It might vary a little bit from 
one person to the next, depending on who's evaluating. And so there's been a lack of really hard quantitative data in psychiatry. And so what that has done, and this isn't a reason thing, it's, I think it's been around for as long as psychiatry has been around, but that lack of objective data has sort of contributed to the stigma against mental illness. I see. People with mental illness, because it's really easy to say, well, it might all just be in your head, you know, it's not a real thing, or potentially in some cases, somebody might say, are you just faking this yeah, you for should attention? should be able to do something Yeah, about you should it, be right? able to cope with this yeah. and, you know, and, and buck up and cowboy up and all that. And nobody's ever accused of faking cancer right. or faking heart disease, exactly, you know, or these yeah. other things, other aspects of medicine that do have very quantitative data. They have assays that you can perform in a lab and get a quantitative readout and say, yes, you know, you, you definitely have this. And psychiatry has sort of lacked that. And so to answer your question, I guess I would say that, you know, we have understood for quite a while that many psychiatric conditions are familial, they're, they're heritable. And so that implies that they're genetic. What we haven't had as much to hang our hat on is actual data showing these are the genes. The past 10 years or so have really changed in that regard because we've accumulated a lot more data to say, yes, if you get a disruption in this gene, in all likelihood, that's going to disrupt the brain development processes, and it's going to result in a certain pattern of behavior, a certain constellation of symptoms. Mm -hmm. And that work is hugely important to scientists who are trying to better understand the biology so that we can more rationally design therapies that are targeted toward sure. specific deficits rather than just trying to find something that works in everybody. So that's hugely important for us as scientists. But I think even more importantly, the accumulation of that kind of data, this genetic data that is objective and that is quantitative has gone and I think will continue to go a long way towards reducing stigma against mental illness as the public absorbs that and understands, okay, there are genes for schizophrenia or there are genes for autism and there are genes for bipolar disorder and, and that's a part of your biology. It's yeah. not just in your head and it's not just something that you, that you should just buck up about and, and deal with. That's a really interesting perspective. I mean, we, we've done a lot of shows on cancer and infectious disease, and that's never an issue that comes up. So it's, right. it's really fascinating to think that the genetic understanding of disease can impact not only the risk stratification or the treatment, but also how society interacts with those patients. So that, right. that's actually fascinating. Uh, you, you've introduced the concept of autism. Can you talk a little bit more about what is it and what drew you into focusing on that disorder in particular? there is a tremendous amount of variability in people with autism. I hear the term spectrum. Yeah, a lot exactly. Of you, you hear that, that term because it's, it's an apt description of, of what it is. So the thing that unites everybody who has autism are two key things. So you need to have some kind of clinically relevant deficit in social communication. Okay. And then the second thing that you need to have to be diagnosed with autism is you need to have a clinically relevant, restricted or repetitive behaviors and interests. Now, both of those things, deficits in social communications and restrictive and repetitive behaviors can encompass a lot of things. Sure. You know, they may look different, but, you know, some of the sort of stereotypical things we think about with autism for restricted and repetitive behaviors are a lot of kids with autism might flap their hands when they get either excited or, or agitated sometimes, or they may curl up and rock in a ball mm -hmm. and they may have other things that look almost sort of ritualistic in the way they do things that they sort of have to do those things. And, and very often that's called stimming that can calm them down. And then with the social communication, on the other hand, that can range from somebody who is completely nonverbal and they may not understand very much of what's said to them 
uh, on the very profound affected end. And then on the higher end, it might just be somebody who has a hard time, who can speak and everything, but has a hard time connecting and understanding what other people are thinking. And then that impairs their ability to have relationships sometimes and then everything in between. And so that presents a challenge from a scientific standpoint because everything within that spectrum is called autism, but clearly the genetic factors that relate to those things can differ widely. And so it's our task as geneticists to sort of unpack that and figure out what variations play roles at different parts of the spectrum. And the spectrum isn't just a one-dimensional thing. It's like a very multi-dimensional thing. <laughs> how are patients diagnosed? Are there subjective tests that they're given or how does that process work? Ultimately, it may be diagnosed by a school counselor sometimes. It may be diagnosed by somebody in a community clinic. It may be diagnosed by somebody in an academic medical center. Like here we have a team of professionals that have various kinds of expertise that look at a case from multiple angles and then it's a very thorough process where they use the gold standard diagnostic test, which is called the ADOS. Does genetics play any role? Does it inform that process at all currently? You know, what, what happens is it's sort of backwards because you get diagnosed with autism first and then you're, you're referred for genetic testing. Some families take that up and they do look at it. But the problem is the clinical genetic testing right now, it's sort of a shot in the dark because there are very few clinical tests. You know, you could test for some syndromic form of autism or something like Rett syndrome or Fragile X or something like mm -hmm. that. So there are tests for those, but that's, I mean, the likelihood of throwing a dart out there and, and happening to test positive for one of those is still pretty low, even if you have a diagnosis for right. autism. Right. Um, let's talk a little bit about your research. Mm -hmm. I know that you're using NGS currently. Can you talk a little bit about what kinds of tools you use in the lab to, to study autism? Yeah. We get exome sequencing data and array genotyping data on people who enroll in Spark. The Simons Foundation is, a, is one of the most active private funders of autism research, and they've funded massive genomic efforts in autism. Probably the most well-known is called the Simon Simplex Collection, which is essentially families where there's one affected individual. Most of the time, it's a quad family where you have the, both parents, both biological parents, and mm -hmm. then the affected child, and then an unaffected sibling. And they've done whole genome sequencing on between 2,500 and 3,000 families, quad families. They've done wow. genome sequencing. So we have access to that data and we, we analyze it in addition to the Spark data. For our own research that we're doing on language, we do whole genome sequencing. I should say also, because I haven't said it yet, that we're primarily a computational lab. So we, first and foremost, we have a lot of computer scientists, a lot of people who are very interested in machine learning and stuff like that. So we're very interested in building predictive models and so that's why we make heavy use of data that's out there and that we can get access to. Sure. But in certain cases, we want to generate the data ourselves because nobody else is doing it. And we have a specific question that we want to, to answer. So but the final piece that I think is interesting is we do molecular inversion probes. So MIPS, this is a targeted sequencing technology. And so what that allows us to do is very economically, you can multiplex a ton of samples on a single lane of sequencing and then get pretty good depth out of very specific genes that you're right. interested in. So we have an eating disorder panel that we designed based on an initial exome sequencing study that we did in eating disorders. And we've got a couple of other panels in the works because I think the combination of having like an array and to kind of get the common variation, you know, you can do imputation and stuff like that to flesh out what common variation is there in your sample, but then also having some rare variants, but then augmenting that with very much hypothesis driven targeted sequencing, that's a pretty economical way to get the lowest hanging fruit. Cool. I'd like to talk a little bit about Spark Project. Can mm -hmm. you tell our listeners what it is, who's participating in it, you know, who's funding it, mm -hmm. and what's the role that NGS and uh, other genomics approaches are playing in Spark? 
Spark represents the next generation of genomic research, and in particular in autism. And the reason for that is that Spark is the largest ongoing collaboration between autism researchers and the autism community. And I say ongoing collaboration because previously what we would do in these large genomic studies, it'd be kind of like a drive-by thing, right. you know, like you take a blood sample and you quickly have them take some assessments or whatever, and then you just get that one snapshot in time of what things look like. And so it's a very static picture. And then, you know, there were methods available where you could recontact people, but it was really, the bar was really high. Like you, it was not something that you could casually undertake. Now, Spark has changed all of that. And before I get into why, I guess I should say the vital statistics of it, we're, we're aiming to recruit 50,000 families with 50, autism. 50,000. Yeah. Wow. A family consists of an individual with autism and both biological parents. That's what we're aiming for. We're recruiting everybody, everybody with autism. Even if your parents don't get involved, if you're an independent adult, um, you can sign up for Spark. And it, it can all be done online too, which is the other really, I think, novel feature of Spark is that you don't have to come into a clinic. So you register online and you give some information and then you're sent a kit in the mail. You spit in the kit. Um, it's a prepaid package that you send back to the lab. DNA gets extracted. We do exome sequencing. We do array genotyping. We would love for Spark to be the main resource for autism research over the next 20 years because we, we plan on, and the Simons Foundation has spent a tremendous amount of effort doing this to keep people engaged, right? Because puberty can change autism. Young adulthood can change autism. There are all sorts of life transitions just growth in general and development in general can change how a person's autism looks. And you don't get that view just from these drive-by studies that are right. just looking at a person at one point in time. And so one of the goals with Spark is to keep that connection going so that we can see all of the many different kinds of developmental trajectories that make up autism and that we can relate genetic variations to that. So we can see if there's anything of prognostic value in that. So obviously to recruit 50,000 families is a massive effort and we are not doing that alone. We're just, we're, we're the site here at the University of Iowa, but there's over 20 sites around the country that are all actively recruiting people in Spark. And so, you know, if people are interested in checking it out, the URL is sparkforautism.org slash uiowa is our site. And you can get more information about what Spark is and, and what we're doing there. There are a lot of population sequencing studies out there, but I like the fact that you know, you're looking for these genetic linkages in people with this spectrum of disorder. So I think if, if there are genes, if there are genetic signatures there, that's where you have to look to find those things. So exactly. Before the mics were on, you and I were talking a little bit about cancer. And, you know, in cancer, the big push now is understanding it from a genetic standpoint and then trying to design more targeted therapies for whatever cancer you have based and genetics that's driving your disease. So this sort of precision medicine approach is, is really a big deal in cancer nowadays. Looking at psychiatric disorders, where do you see that kind of precision medicine approach going? Do you think NGS is going to be part of that? What's your opinion about that? I think so. I think, you know, we're still very much in the gene discovery phase right now with sequencing, and we're, we're just trying to enumerate what genes are out there. And at some point, though, these studies are going to kind of reach saturation and we will, you know, I don't know when that's going to be. It'll be at some point in the future and we'll have kind of figured out what the autism genes are. Mm -hmm. And then, the, you know, the question is, well, what comes next? And, right. and I think precision medicine is a big one. And we don't have to wait until we've completely figured out what all the autism genes are. You know, there are efforts right now to target clinical trials a little bit more precisely by looking at monogenic forms of different kinds of conditions where it's sort of obvious what the molecular liability is and that, you know, it makes sense to try and design a drug to address that. 
I think the wall that we're going to hit sooner or later is that you can peel off some percentage of cases of autism that are monogenic and largely due to a single big mutation. It's great to do clinical trials for those. Most cases of autism don't have an obvious single cause and, and are instead there because of an accumulation of risk factors, largely still genetic, but multiple risk factors. So I think the challenge there and something that we're beginning to work on is partitioning because we talked before about how heterogeneous autism is, right. right? There's a huge spectrum in many different directions. And so we want to be able to partition that space phenotypically first and then figure out what the genetic basis is for these different clusters within autism. And then even if that's sort of a polygenic profile or at least oligogenic or something like that, where there are multiple clear genetic risk factors, but if people fit into a pattern, you can still imagine designing a clinical trial for people who have a specific risk a pattern. Polygenic risk score, right. for example, yeah. Yeah. You're a computational lab, as you said. And so I'm really interested because normally when I talk to NGS folks, the computational side is one of their biggest challenges. What are your biggest challenges in uh, applying NGS and arrays to your research? And how do you overcome those challenges? You know, the biggest obstacle for us, even computationally, is just the availability of good phenotype data. It's sort of remarkable how many massive data sets are out there, but as rich as that genetic data is, the phenotypic data is incredibly sparse. And right. when you're talking about a condition that has as much heterogeneity as autism does, you have to get fairly detailed yeah, you in have the to clinical really, Because otherwise, how are you going to sort that out? You know? Yeah. And this goes back to the question at the beginning about psychiatry being a unique field among medicine because phenotypically, there wasn't a lot of quantitative data. And we're sort of making moves right now. NIMH is very interested in a new field called computational psychiatry. Hmm. And one aspect of computational psychiatry, a lot of people are calling digital phenotyping. So ways to quickly and easily and quantitatively phenotype people for things that have high relevance and are highly predictive that are essentially markers. So something for, everyone can hang their hat on. Yeah. This is, this is the way. Yeah. yeah. So there are efforts underway to be able to collect that kind of data that does have relevance for psychiatric disease. But the more and the richer the phenotypic data that we have to work with, the more we will be able to leverage the genetic data that we have. And a lot of those genetic associations that weren't significant across the margins of 100,000 people may actually be incredibly significant in 100 people. Looking into the future five, 10 years, obviously, technologically, there are going to be a lot of developments that are happening. Spark over the next five years, I'm sure, is going to blossom to something really cool and awesome. Uh, in terms of knowledge base, what's the most exciting thing for you about the future in this area? The big question that I think the public has about this kind of research is, well, so what? Yeah, of course. Yeah. It's the so what question. And, you know, I have all sorts of pre-formulated answers to those sorts of things when I give a, a talk to the public, but I think that's a very good question. And we're not going to be able to get to the so what until we transform all of this you know, meticulous collection of autism risk genes into something that actually makes a difference in an individual's life, in a Absolutely. family's life. Yeah. So those are the things. It's not the gene discovery that excites me. I think that's a necessary step along the way. And there are a lot of cool things we can learn about biology and neuroscience in general. I think neuroscience in general has benefited greatly by studying conditions like autism. And those things are all exciting. But I really want to see the day that this kind of ascertainment, this genetic ascertainment of genetic risk leads to a tangible difference in a family's life. And we're working up to that. And there's reason to be optimistic, but we have a ways to go. And But I think that's the direction we need to go in. That's a wonderful notion on, on which to end the interview. And Jake, I just want to say that 
I wish you the best of luck in your work. It's fascinating and it's it's really needed in society. And I, I hope that Spark and you make great progress really soon. And thanks for joining us on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Thanks a lot for having me, Paul. I appreciate it. So genomics technologies are helping scientists to understand the biology of autism and other psychiatric disorders by linking genes with specific psychiatric traits. This increased understanding can already be used to design smarter clinical trials, and it might one day enable the development of precision medicines to treat psychiatric diseases. But maybe just as important, identifying specific genes involved in psychiatric disorders will hopefully reduce the social stigma that comes with these diseases. If you're interested in learning more about the SPARK Project for Autism, please visit sparkforautism.org. There's a link there for joining SPARK, and you can do everything you need to do online. If you like today's show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Join me next time when I'll be talking with Dr. Richard J. Smith, professor of otolaryngology at the University of Iowa and director of the Iowa Institute of Human Genetics. We'll be discussing the genetics of hearing impairment and deafness here on the Illumina Genomics Podcast.